Well, for the past uh, year and a half or so, we've been going through the book of Acts. And uh, if there is any one word that would describe the book of Acts, I would describe, the use, use a good word, would be expansion. Because that's really what's happening in the book. Um, we, we go in, in chapter 1 from just a hundred believers or so to uh, a few thousands by chapter 4 to untold thousands by the end of the book. It, it just expands in numbers. The church just expands. Uh, but also not only numerically, but also the church expands geographically. Chapter 1 begins with believers in this upper room, uh, like just a few of them in the upper room. And then in Acts chapter 2, we see them filling the temple area. Uh, and, and, then, um, and then they start filling Jerusalem. And then it goes out and fills Judea and Samaria. And then by the time you get to chapter 13 and following, right, believers begin to get scattered all across the Roman Empire. Expansion geographically. Further, we see an ethnic expansion as well. The, so the book begins. We're made up, the church is made up almost entirely of Jews. I mean, it makes sense because Jesus was the, the Jewish Messiah. He came to save his people from their sins. But soon with the, the scattering of the church in Acts chapter 8, Philip goes north to Samaria and preaches the gospel to Samaritans. And uh, many Samaritans believe in Jesus. Now, Samaritans were not fully Jews. They also had married with the Gentiles as well, so kind of like half-breeds. So we see the, the ethnic expansion as well. And then Acts chapter 10, the gospel expands to the Gentiles fully as Peter goes to the home of uh, of Cornelius in Caesarea and preaches to him and, and his, his friends, to Cornelius and his friends, his relatives, and, and they believe. And in chapter 11, we see a fair number of Gentiles even turning to the Lord. And then with the trip that Paul and Barnabas makes to Gentiles' lands that we've seen in chapter 13 and 14, just uh, the ethnicity of the church expands as well. Many, many, many Gentiles coming into uh, the church as well. And with this expansion, of course, came some growing pains. And uh, we see the church dealing with them in chapter 15. You can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, which we began looking at last week. And if you remember in that chapter, the, the whole question was, as the church ethnically expands beyond just Jews in the church, but Gentiles are coming in the church, how, how do we deal with that? And, and, and you can see that some sought to deal with it by putting the Gentiles underneath the law and circumcised them. Chapter 15, verse 1, but some men came down from Judea. This, this is taking place here in Antioch, um, in Syria, Syrian Antioch. But they came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In other words, faith in Jesus was not enough. Uh, uh, needless to say, Paul and Barney, Barnabas were not happy at this. Because they knew that faith in Jesus was enough. And so as verse 2 says, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Here was heresy coming in the church and Paul and Barnabas said, we want nothing of that. That is entirely inappropriate. It's wrong. And uh, it was clear that they were getting nowhere. Their discussion with them. And so the church sent Paul and Barnabas, some others up to Jerusalem, to the apostles and the elders to, to settle the matter. And so as they, they traveled up to Jerusalem, the apostles and elders, they, they gathered in Jerusalem for what's known as the Jerusalem Council. That's where they decided once and for all how it is that the Gentiles are going to come into the church. What's required of the Gentiles for their salvation? Is it faith alone enough? Or do you need faith in uh, some of the works of the law of Moses? All the works of the law of Moses? We read in verse 4 that when they came to Jerusalem, we they were welcomed by the church and by the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. So they came to the church and they kind of declared their side about all the Gentiles coming in by faith alone. And then verse 5 has the opposing party. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It's necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. Right, just another articulation, right? You must circumcise them, you must order them to submit to the law of Moses. And, and these two parties then were, were one against each other. You, you had one saying you need to submit to the law of Moses, and then you had another says, no, you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And, and this subtle heresy of adding something to the gospel always sneaks its way into the church. Here it was the law and, and Moses, but today it might be something like this. You need to be baptized to be saved. Or you need to be baptized in a certain way to be saved. 
Or you need to be a member of a certain kind of church in order to be saved. Or you need to give a certain percentage of your income to be saved. Or, or you must say a certain prayer in a certain way in order to be saved. Or you must abstain from alcohol entirely in order to be saved. Or, or abstain from sinly thing, sinful things entirely in order to be saved. You can't play cards, go to the movies, dance um, at the wedding. or If you ever want to be saved. Right? All these things just, just add on. And, and, and there's wisdom in some things. Right? There, there, there's wisdom in giving. It's a, a blessing, right? There's, there's wisdom in walking righteously. But people then press conformity to our form of Christianity. You can't be a Christian unless you conform to our cultural customs. But church family, that's not the case at all. Nothing will save you from your sins except faith in Christ. Nothing can you give to earn your salvation. No fasting, no prayer, no being good enough. Gospel's plain and simple. You believe in Christ Jesus died for your sin. You just call out to God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You trust in his mercy. And the promise of God is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not calling and doing these works, simply calling on the name of the Lord. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing that we bring to the table. It's the gospel. Do you believe it? I mean, this is, this is good news. Ryan has directed the music this, this Sunday morning, just around grace. And grace, that's what it is. It's the, it's the grace of God. And we saw it last week, right? If, if you remember um, the whole argument, what, what happens here is that the, the apostles were gathered together, verse 6. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So you have the, the work side and the grace side and the apostles and the elders. And this all council was all coming together and there was much debate. And then Peter speaks in verses 7 through 11. And then Paul and Barnabas speak in verse 12. And then 13 through 21, we see James speak. So last week we saw Peter speak. Today we're going to focus on verse 10, verse 12 rather. And then um, next week we're going to look at James, what James says in that. And last week we looked at, at Peter's words. In verses 7 through 11, he shared his experience about going to the Gentiles. And, and when he went to Cornelius' house, the Gentiles believed, and God bore witness their faith was genuine by giving them the Holy Spirit. And they were speaking in tongues, right? This miraculous thing, speaking languages they didn't know. And, and, and there was no circumcision. There was no law-keeping required, simply faith in Jesus. And that's what Peter said. When I went to the Gentiles, it was, it was just faith. It, it wasn't required to be circumcised before the Spirit came. It's just they, they believed. And that's verse 11. He says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. That's great, Peter, believing in grace. And uh, we're going to look at, at Paul and Barnabas as they related what signs and wonders they had done, what God had done through them among the Gentiles. And we're going to see that's even also just grace, God's grace among there. But before we get there, I, I just want us to reflect and linger again there on verse 11. And I want to do that in a sort of unique way as we think about grace and our salvation by that. In a unique way, by giving Jake Stokite an opportunity to speak. Over the last couple of months, Jake and I have been meeting lots of times just talking about hermeneutics and interpreting the Bible and how to approach the scripture and how to come at it. <clears throat> and uh, talking about Bible interpretation, we've talked about preaching, and I just encourage you, why don't you just prepare a, a message? We'll kind of look and see how that is. And he prepared a message from Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 10, and I thought, you know what, today would be a perfect time to give him a first opportunity to come up and speak. You know, just a 20-minute sermon is kind of what I gave him, but as an illustration of this grace of the Lord Jesus. And then when he finishes, then I will come back and expand upon verse 12. So, Jake, why don't you come and open up your passage, preach to us the saving grace of Christ. Well, good morning. <laughs> I want to first say that I'm unworthy to stand in front of you to be able to talk about grace. I worried all last night and thought about what I was going to do, and I prepared this sermon. I've gone over it over and over and over in my head, over and over and over, in the car, in the bathroom, in the shower, everywhere. And yet, uh, I just pray that the Holy Spirit will do me justice and do us justice, and I can uh, show you that the, God's grace is amazing. It's powerful. Um, the first time I stood here at the pulpit, I, I, I told you that uh, last year I went through the Bible 
uh, with a bunch of other men, uh, great men, and we, we went through it from page to page, cover to cover, and, and how we summarized it. And uh, every single book, uh, every book, just a guy, two notebooks full of, of what every book is, is about. And now I get to stand here and talk to you about something different. I get to talk to you about God's grace. See, we go through Christmas, and we just went through Christmas, and maybe we've given gifts to family members and friends that we love. Maybe family members and friends gave us gifts. Uh, maybe sometimes this gift made us really happy, made us joyous. Maybe we were surprised by some of the gifts we got. Maybe we were shocked. I know I was shocked when I saw my little miter saw, and it was really awesome, and um, brought me joy. It brings me joy sometimes to bring a gift and to see someone smile and say, wow, thank you. I feel so loved. Well, the gift that I'm going to talk about today can't be wrapped up in a package. The gift that I'm going to talk about today can't be put inside any stocking. It's a gift that isn't given to us by anyone on this planet, nor friend, nor family, nothing, but only God. God's given us this gift. It's the gift of saving grace. And that is the message that I have today for you. It's called God's saving grace. It comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So I would like you to open up your books and your hearts and your minds. I'm going to read these passages, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive into this. So if you're not there, let's get there. Ephesians chapter 2. It reads, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the following the prince and power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By Christ you ha- or by grace you have been saved. Verse six, and hath raised us up with him and seated us up with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing; it is a gift from God. <clears throat> Verse ten. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, I'm going to do, if we can just quickly pray, and we're going to break this down. Heavenly Father, Lord Christ Jesus, we come before you on this day, exalting you, Lord, humbly giving you our hearts. Lord, I pray that uh, you would give me the wisdom uh, by the Holy Spirit to speak honestly and truthfully about your grace, something that you give us as a gift, Father, that we don't deserve. We're sinners. But, Lord, you come down and you save us with your rich mercy. Help me to speak justice by your grace and by your your spirit, Father. Help me to impact the hearts of those sitting here underneath the congregation. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we honor you. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to break this sermon down into three sections. The first section is going to be verses 1 through 3, in which I am going to entitle The Walking Dead. As we get into verses 4 uh, through 6, uh, I'm going to trans- transition over. That is going to be called The But God Effect. And as we move into verses 7 through 10, it's going to be called The Saving Grace. Now, before we get into it, we need to remember that the book of Ephesians is written by the Apostle Paul, sent out there to encourage the saints and the Gentiles of uh, Ephesus. So as we read here in verse 1, we see, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walk. So here Paul is saying there and pointing the finger and saying, Hey, you Gentiles were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you lived. And here you see in verse 2, he says it again, In which you once walked. See, this is the first time that Paul is bringing up the theme of walking in Ephesians. And in Ephesians, the theme of walking is really big. In fact, if you look at verse uh, chapter 4, he talks about walking worthy. He encourages the Gentile saints to walk worthy, to walk in unity, to walk in love, and to walk in light. But here Paul is using walk as a metaphor, as like I said, a doctrine of living or a lifestyle. So Paul is saying, hey... You lived in a way that was, was dead in your trespasses and sins. You were following the course of this world. 
And more importantly, you are following a prince in power of the air. So who is the prince in power of the air? Who is it? Say it again. Yeah, there you go. Satan. So they were dead, following Satan. That's why I entitled this section The Walking Dead, because they're not really fully alive. They're not alive. They don't have Christ Jesus in their heart. They have no hope. They're walking dead. They're not fully dead because they can go from this point to this point. They can move their arms. They're like zombies, right? Zombies can move. They go from here, and then they walk over here, and they do this, and they do this. And then they're not really alive because they're kind of dead. And that's what Paul is sitting there saying. Hey, you guys were living a lifestyle that was much like a zombie. You had no Jesus in your heart and your life. You're walking dead in your sins, and you were living this way, following the world. And more importantly, you were following Satan, and he was working in you. As we move into verse 3, this is where Paul changes his flavor a little bit. See, Paul points the finger and says, you Gentiles were living this way. You Gentiles were walking this way. But as we look at the verse 3, we sit there and we sit there and we see, hey, Paul is going among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Paul goes from verse 1 and verse 2 saying, you Gentiles, to all of a sudden we go into verse 3, we move there, and he says, we, we were once lived this way. See, this is a huge statement of honest admittance from Paul because Paul is sitting there saying, hey, us Jews, were guilty of it too. Not only were you guilty of following this world and, and living in your sins and, and fulfilling the passions of your flesh, but us too, us Jews, were guilty of it. I say this is an honest, true admittance because it is. The Jews were the spiritually circumcised, right? They were the ones who were supposed to be holy, They were the ones who were supposed to be righteous, the clean. They separated themselves from the Gentiles, who were spiritually uncircumcised. They were unholy, unclean, and unrighteous. But Paul is bringing them together and saying, hey, we live this way too. We're together in this. We are unified in this sin Now, I'm going to move away from context, and I'm going to start going into application. And just as Paul could sit there and say, hey, you Gentiles and us Jews were guilty, I can stand here and sit there and say, hey, you and me, we're guilty of this too. We were at one point walking like this. At one point in our life, we were walking in this zombie state, thinking that we could do everything in our own self, thinking that we could have the power to to just go about life and we would be okay. We were guilty of it. I was guilty of it. I'm only two years and maybe a couple months saved. For 40-some years, I was flesh-led, just like Paul is sitting there saying that we were all flesh-led. I say that because we allowed the flesh to lead our bodies. We allowed the flesh to lead and guide our thoughts and our actions and our speech. But I can tell you, after 40-some years of it, it got me nothing but trouble. When you're flesh-led, the problem is, is that your flesh is never full. It's never enough. The flesh is never satisfied. It's never enough. It just craves more and more and more, and it's never enough. In fact, if we go into Galatians, you don't have to go there. I'll go there for you. But if you go into Galatians 5.19, Paul goes in and talks about some of the the sins and the trappings of of what can happen if you allow yourself to be flesh-led instead of Christ-led. Some of these trappings are this. Paul describes it as adultery, fornication, uncleanness, hatred, wrath, idolatry, envying, strife, murders, drunkenness. These are all things that were happening back in the day in Paul's time. So much so that Paul had to write about it to try to encourage them. Hey, stop doing this way. Stop living like this. This was stuff that was happening in Paul's time. What about our time? Is there still adultery going on right now? Absolutely. Absolutely. I explained to you that the flesh is never full. It's never satisfied. We see all the time people cheating on their spouses because their spouses, it's, they're not satisfied enough with their spouse. Even though God gives us our, our, our women, our wives, as a gift, we're blessed to have the love of our wife next to us. Husbands, look at your wife. Look at her. Tell her you love her. It is a gift. But if you're flesh-led, It's not enough. 
So you go out and you commit acts of adultery. Now, for us Christians, maybe, maybe we don't go out there and physically go and commit an act of adultery, but doesn't Jesus sit there and say to us, if you look at someone lustfully in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart? Doesn't Jesus say this? So we as Christians need to protect our thoughts and our eyes, and we need to protect our hearts and love our wives. Don't allow the flesh to lead. The flesh will only let you, go, let you down. Hatred, wrath, we see that all the time. Idolatry, I'll tell you, if you're walking in the flesh right now and Jesus isn't in the forefront of your mind, if Jesus isn't number one in your heart, whatever that thing is, you've created an idol of that. That is your idol. We are to worship Jesus Christ and only him. We see people today walking around looking for power and money, and they put their, their faith in money, in currency. Or maybe they put their, their themselves as the idol. Maybe alcohol is the idol. I told you, I lived a life of 40 years of just stupidity, just wrongness. I created so many idols in my life that I'm ashamed of. But again, God's grace came, right? We'll go into that later. Murders. What about murders? Do we still got murders happening right now? Right? Even though it says in the Bible, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not kill. How many people died last year in 2021? How many murders happened? What about last night while we were sleeping? How many murders happened last night while we were sleeping, before we woke up, to put on our clothes, to come over here to worship? What about babies? How many babies are murdered every day? See, the problem is we live in a murderous nation. And we do. There's no, there's no way around it. Murders happen, and we do it. And the sad thing is, is that it happens so much, people get comfortable with it. Oh, we just heard that there was another murder happened the other day. Oh, there was a shooting at Auburn. Middle, middle, middle school kids just murdered two high school kids. That just happened, what, a couple weeks ago? Just lockdown happened? The stuff happens. It's happening. Because of people are walking around flesh-led. See, the problem with walking around leading, being led by the flesh is that it, Romans 8.13 says that if you live after the flesh, you will die. Romans 8.8 8 says that if you live by the flesh, you can't please God. Now, if you live by the flesh, you're dead. And dead things can't do stuff. I'm sorry. But dead things can't do stuff. And if you're a sinner... Sinners cannot bring themselves to salvation. Sinners cannot make themselves righteous. You're a sinner. You stay stuck in a sin. So we can see right now it's pretty bleak. Just talked about how sin can trap us if we're not careful. Talking about how to safeguard your heart, your thoughts, and your minds so that we can become strong Christians to make God feel worthy in, in, in everything that we do. Talk about how we live in a murderous nation. It's pretty bleak. And I talked about how we all once lived like this. So I want to transgress or trans or just go to the next phase because it, it, it's too dark. <laughs> and this is this is the this is the best. This is the big separator in the passage here. This is the wedge that changes everything. Verse four through six changes everything, and it starts with these two words. These two words that are power-packed words. They're like the left and right jab of a boxer. They're huge. Verse 4 starts off and it says, but God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, I can't get these two words out of my head. And I'm going to say it again and again and again, because as I was doing this, writing down this message, I had to just read it over and over. I had to read these words, but God. But God, over and over, but God. And I kept thinking to myself, how powerful is this? You see, when these two words are together, what it means is that God is intervening. It means that God is taking action, that God has something to say, that there's a certain situation happening, but God, as great and powerful and mighty as he is, comes in and he intervenes. It's powerful. It's beautiful. And I was taken back by it, and I thought, hmm, I wonder how many other but gods there are in the Bible, because I'm really kind of taken back. 
So I did the research. I'm going to share a few with you. Genesis 8.1, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark and made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Genesis 50.20, as for you, you meant evil to me, but God meant it for good, that it would bring many people around and kept alive as they are today. See, this is a story about Joseph and Joseph's brothers. Joseph's brothers hated Joseph. They didn't want anything to do with Joseph. Just go, Joseph. So what did they do? They sold him into slavery, into Egypt. It's the first account of human trafficking right here, right? I'm going to sell you and get rid of you. They hated Joseph. But God came in and changed the circumstances. If you don't know how that story finishes, read Genesis. It's a beautiful story. It does change everything. 1 Samuel 23, 14 And David remained in the stronghold in the wilderness in the hill country of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hands. See, here's Saul. He's looking. It says right here, he looked for David every single day. Why? Because he wanted to kill him. But God had other plans. God protected him. And it changed history. Right? I got one more for you. Let's look at the writer of this epistle. Let's take a look at who wrote this. Who wrote this? Paul. That's right. Paul wrote this. Let's look at Paul's life. Paul was the number one most persecutor of Christianity. And all you got to do is open up to Acts 8, and you can read about how Paul entered into the churches to wreak havoc. Havoc. Try to imagine, what would that be? Would he come into a church and just start screaming? Would he just be wild? Would he, would, he, would he throw chairs? What kind of havoc is this? But I don't know, but it was troublesome. He went and entered the homes of these families, and he didn't care. He came in, took the families, separated them, bound them, and sent them to prison. Could you imagine this? Could you imagine sitting in your home, having dinner, having the door flown open? Here comes Paul. He's going to grab you throw you on the ground, right? Your kids may be screaming, confusion happening in the air, your wife crying. What's going on? Paul doesn't care. This was the walk Paul had. This is how Paul walked, and he was fine with it. He bound you up, put you in prison, and there you go. But God. (laughs) But God, on that road to Damascus, opened up the heaven and humbled Paul. He changes Paul. He transforms Paul from the number one most persecutor of the Christian faith to the number one most protector of the gospel. He transforms Paul. Amen. He transforms him. And that's what he does with us. That's what God has done with me. Because he's rich in mercy. Because of the great love in which he loves us, he takes us when we were dead in our sins, when we were stinking. You know what I think about? I think of Pigpen from Charlie Brown. You guys remember Pigpen? He's he's this cartoon figure, and and he's got all this dust and dirt, and and no matter where he goes, there's Pigpen and all that dirt. There we are, before we accepted Jesus Christ, thinking we're all okay. Stinking like Pigpen. Pigpen. (laughs) There we go. But God comes in. And reaches down and picks us up. And not only does he just picks us up, he makes us alive. And he seats us up there in the heavenly places. We were dead. We couldn't do anything. We were walking like zombies, lost, without hope. And he picks us up. And he sits us there. I've got it somewhere in my notes here. But this isn't the first time he did that. In fact, um... Leave in, a, in chapter one. I, don't, I can't find it right now, but he does that to Jesus. He picks Jesus up from the dead and he elevates him. The same power, the same mighty power that elevated Jesus takes us, transforms us, and elevates us and sits us up there in heaven. The same power. How awesome is that? God comes in and he saves us, transforms us, and reconciles us. It's amazing. The transformation is amazing. The transformation is, is, is so amazing that it, it, it's even more amazing than death. 
What happens in death? You, you transform, your body decomposes, it rots, goes back to dust, and that's it. But this transformation is something different. This transformation takes something that's dead, turns it around and makes it new, and then just pushes that out in the world, and you go out and you transform others. You go from death to life. This is not a remodel job. What Jesus Christ has done to me in my heart and the transformation that he has done for me is not a remodel. It's not like I just shaved my beard and gave myself a goatee, put on different clothes, maybe threw on a hat and said, hey, I'm new. I'm new. I'm a new guy. Maybe I went into the gym and pumped some weights and got some big muscles and, hey, I'm new. I'm a new Jake now. It's not what this is. He transforms you from the inside out. He takes something that isn't alive and he brings beauty and he blows you up with hope. You have peace. You have direction. That's the biggest thing that he changed in my life was that he gave me direction. He showed me him. Now I talk about transformation and that how we are new creatures and it's only by him that this happens. You need to understand, it's only by God's grace that this happened. Like I said earlier, sinners cannot make themselves righteous. Sinners cannot give themselves salvation. See, because God loved us so much, he transforms us, he reconciles us, and then he gives us eternal security. We have salvation because he loves us, and we've done nothing to deserve it. I have done nothing to deserve to be up here and stand and talk to you about this. That's why I opened up and I said, I'm unworthy. I remember one time I was talking to my mother. I was a high school kid, a little punk. And I was a trouble kid. I was a troublesome kid. I was always getting in trouble. I got arrested, I can't even tell you how many times. <laughs> um, and my mom talked to me about Jesus and the Bible. And I picked this thing up and I ridiculed it. I thought this was the dumbest thing. It's just a book, Mom. It's just a book. It's not real. But it ain't just a book. And it is real. I spent all last year reading this book. I spent all last year trying to figure out what Jesus Christ is planning to do with me. What does Jesus Christ want from me? And then I started realizing how powerful and impactful that it was. It wasn't just about me. It's about what he's done for everyone. What did he do for Noah? What did he do for David? What did he do for Joseph? And what's he going to do for you? What's he going to do for your family? What's he going to do for your children's children? His mighty power is so big and extensive and loving. The but God effect is real. What's the but God effect in your life? What's the, what's the situation that's happening in your life that could be one thing, but God comes in and takes it and changes it to something else? What is your but God effect? We're going to move into our last section here. The last section entitled Saving Grace, it's our conclusion. We went from dark and bleak to all of a sudden having salvation, all of a sudden being seated high in the heavenly places, and of course, my mind could only think one thing. Why? Why did you do it? Why did you do this for me? Well, if you look at verse 7, it says, To show the immeasurable riches in his grace and kindness. You see, we have redemption through Jesus Christ's blood. We have forgiveness for our trespasses according to his riches and his grace. God does this. To unite all things in him. He does this so that we can be reconciled and seated with him. This is a gift that no person can give us. Do you understand? This is a beautiful gift that we need to cherish. And now that we have this gift, what do we do with it? It's not like my table saw or my saw that I talked earlier that I was so thrilled about. Yeah, what do I do with that? I build stuff. Great. Jesus gave me something. He gave you something. What are we going to do with this gift? Yeah, let's build something. Maybe we'll stay on that point. Let's keep building more Christians. Let's keep showing them our faith. Let's walk worthy. Let's walk in unity. Let's walk in love. 
Let's walk in togetherness. I pray today that you would hear how beautiful this act is of God to be able to reach down and take us and save us. I pray today that you would not just walk out of this church and forget about this gift as it is so easy to forget about things that that just conspired here. We sing, we praise, we feel good, and then we go out into that world, right? But I pray that you would honor and hold this gift in your heart and that every action that you do from this point on, that you would show him worthiness, that you would exalt him in every single thing that you do with every thought, speech, and action that you have. Exalt him and bring him glory. That is what we do with this gift. That is how we repay him. To not do that would be a shame. So I ask that we would just pray one more time. As my time is done here. Um, let's bow our heads down. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, it's truly a, a wonderful blessing and a gift that you have given us, your children, Father. And we don't deserve it, Lord. We were sinners destined to hell. But instead, you come and you loved us and you elevate us. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here sitting down right now, if they are still lost in that zombie-like state, Father, that you would blow their heart up and their mind and their soul like you did mine, Father. I was corrupt. I was the worst, stinking like pig pen. But Father, here you came and you saved me, and, and now I'm standing here praying to these people, praying to my fellow church family. Lord, you are good. Lord, please impact this family. Please work through their minds. Help them to be strong and courageous. Help them to be bold and loving and kind. Help them to walk worthy, Father. Help remind them that we are supposed to exalt you in everything that we do. Father, we love you for everything that you've done for us and everything that you will continue to do. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. That was a long introduction out of a short sermon. Thank you, Jake. It was wonderful. Uh, my, my text that's, was, is, um, here we go, chapter 15 and verse 12. Just relating what God has done, and that's exactly what Jake did. What has God done in Jake's life? It's God's grace. What has God done in your life? If you're a believer in Jesus, it's all God's grace. And really, this is uh, what we ought to do in light of the book of Acts, right? The book of Acts is calling us to be my witnesses, right? To go forth and to relate what God has done in our lives. Now, here in in chapter 15 and verse 12, after reflecting there upon the grace of God, we're going to see more grace here in verse 12. We read here, all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so basically, Peter was done speaking, and so it was Paul and Barnabas' turn. And basically what they did is they just shared what took place in their missionary journey. Um, they, did, they said, we just want to tell you what God has done through us. And particularly talking about the Gentiles, what he's done among the Gentiles. Now, if, if you think about it, Paul and Barnabas had already given this speech several times already. When they finished their missionary journey, which is Acts 13 and 14, <clears throat> if you look at chapter 14, verse 27, you see this, that they returned back home and they arrived and they gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them. They, they just spoke about Acts 13 and 14. They, they said what their missionary trip was alike. And then on their way up to the Jerusalem Council, uh, we see the same report given over and over. Chapter 15 and verse 3, Paul and Barnabas and, and some others were sent out, being sent on their way by the church. They passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. They, they just described and related what God had done. And we're going to see it's all God's grace. And now before the gathering in Jerusalem, when they were welcomed by the church, if you look in verse 4, they came to Jerusalem, they're welcomed by the church and the apostles, and they declared all that God had done with them. Again, just relating God's grace among the Gentiles, which he poured out. And now, one more time, now this time, <clears throat> before the entire gathering at Jerusalem, 
they related what signs and wonders God had done with them among the Gentiles. Essentially, he just gave a brief review of their missionary journey. And so what I would like to do this morning is, is sort of put myself in Barnabas and Paul's situation and, and just relate to you sort of firsthand what they may have said um, in, in that Jerusalem council. And, and Paul was probably the, the main speaker, um, so he's probably the one. So I'll tell it from the, the point of, of Paul as he would argue his case for God's grace among the Gentiles. <clears throat> Excuse me. He might have said something like this. Brothers and fathers, apostles and elders, Barnabas and I are glad to report to you what signs and wonders God did among the Gentiles. It, it, it all began when we were the, the church in Antioch, that great church. We were with the leaders of the church and we're ministering to the Lord. We were praying to the Lord. We're fasting and, and seeking God's will on our lives. And God worked and he acted. The Holy Spirit said, <clears throat> excuse me. The Holy Spirit said in an audible voice, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. We discerned that God was, was calling us to get out of Antioch and, and, and to go and to just spread this gospel. And we didn't know where we would go, but since Barnabas was from Cyprus, he had some context there. We figured that that would be a good place to start. So the church sent us on the journey, went down to the seacoast of Seleucia. And I remember many of the people of the church coming down with us and sending us off on this missionary journey. And, and then uh, when, when we were there in um, in, in Seleucia, we were arranged uh, for a fair to set sail to Cyprus. This is where Barnabas was from. And, and we landed in Salamis, and the next day we began to follow up with those who Barnabas knew. And we started in Salamis, and we just headed west right through that island. And along that way, we visited all sorts of synagogues, and we preached the, the word of God to those along the way. But nothing remarkable happened until we came to Paphos. And here we saw the mighty hand of God at work. <clears throat> we were preaching Jesus as the Messiah. And this Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus opposed us at every turn. And, and, and finally, I rebuked him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, God strike you blind. And God acted and struck him blind. And the proconsul, who was a, a Gentile, saw what happened and, and heard our teaching, and he believed. He was a Gentile. This was God working among the Gentiles. We weren't even preaching the word of God to the Gentiles. It was just synagogue and synagogue and synagogue, and this Gentile believed. God was showing up on this, on this trip. Well, well, soon after we were in Perga, we, uh, we set sail for, soon after we, we left uh, <clears throat> um, I'm sorry, Paphos, we went to Perga up north in Pamphylia. We didn't spend much time there, but went up into the mountains into Antioch in Pisidia. And in that town, God did his wondrous work. When the Sabbath came, we entered the Sabbath, just sat in the midst of the congregation, and the rulers saw that we were uh, just new and visiting, and so they asked for a word of encouragement. So I stood up, and I proclaimed the grace of God. I spoke about Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, how forgiveness of sins can be found in him. And I said, everyone who believes in Jesus is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. So I went to the synagogue and I proclaimed freedom from the law and freedom from Moses in the grace of Jesus. And as I was preaching them to get rid of the burden of this law... That, that you are trying to put back on the Gentiles. I was trying to take it off. I was telling them to remove the law. And as I was doing this, they were interested in hearing it again. They begged me that I'd come back the next Sabbath and speak with them. And during this week, I was uh, out among the people, kind of talking with them. And there's a buzz around the synagogue, what's happening, this preacher. And that next Sabbath, not only did the Jews come, but the Gentiles, like almost the whole city was gathered together there. But the Jews were jealous. They were jealous of the crowds that the Gentiles had descended upon their synagogue. And so they hated me. They began rebuking me and resisting me and contradicting me and reviling me. And so at that point, when I saw the Jews rejected this freedom that could be obtained through the grace of the Lord Jesus simply by faith alone, I turned to the Gentiles and God did his marvelous work. I hardly said a word to them. 
And a bunch of the Gentiles in Antioch believed the word of God. And they were saved from their sin. They were they, Those who were appointed to eternal life believed and trusted in Christ. I didn't command them to be circumcised or to keep the law of Moses. I mean, on the one hand, I didn't have much time because I was driven from their city quite afterwards. But on the other hand, the Jews wanted nothing with these Gentiles who believed. So there wasn't even this question so much. But nevertheless, the Gentiles had been transformed by the grace of God. They were worshiping him. They were glorifying him. And the word was spreading throughout the whole region, believing in the Lord. There was no need to compel these vibrant believers to go back into this law, to deaden them, to compel them to be circumcised, to keep the law of Moses. Anyway, I was kicked out of Antioch, and so we said it, we headed east to Iconium, and and there, as was our custom, again, we went to the synagogue and preached the gospel of grace. And a great number of both Jews and Gentiles believed. I mean, here we were, right, in, in the in the synagogue and kind of in the ministry, right? There's a lot of Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus. They were hearing about Jesus and coming to faith. But our opposition came from the Jews. It was the unbelieving Jews who were resisting our work. Yet we remained a long time there. And we bore witness to the word of his grace. Yet eventually, those in Iconium had enough, and they, they attempted to stone us to death. And so we fled from there. We fled south to Lystra, and God did an amazing thing there. There was a, a, a lame beggar there, couldn't use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. And, and I saw as I was preaching that he had faith to be made well. And, and so I commanded him to rise up on his feet, and he sprang up, and he began walking. And, and, and that caused quite a stir in this idol-filled place. People started like like rushing and, and being happy and speaking their own language. They didn't even know what they said. And pretty soon I found out that they were worshiping uh, Barnabas and myself as Zeus and Hermes. Like their God had come down to earth. They're worshiping us. When I figured this out, I, I tore my garments in disgust. I preached the good news to them. I didn't command the law of Moses to them. I preached them the good news of the grace of Jesus Christ. Right? Turn to God. Turn from these vain idols and turn to this God who's been so good. It has been so gracious to you. And God has provided you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. He satisfied your heart with food and gladness. So come to him and, and cry out to him is what I proclaimed. Turn to Christ, not to Moses. But the angry Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and they actually stoned me. They stoned me and dragged me out of the city and they left me for dead. And apart from the grace of God, I would have died. But God revived me. He healed me and allowed me to continue on my journey. Next, we went to, to Derby. We preached the gospel of that city, and, and many believed. And they became followers of Christ. Not because they had to obey some law, but because Christ had transformed them from the inside, and they were following after him with their whole heart. Not once did we encourage them to be circumcised or to keep the law of Moses. And then on our journey, then we returned back by the, the same way in which we came. And, and we saw the disciples growing in the Lord. And, and we saw that many being Gentiles, even where they're doing well, they're continuing on in the faith, progressing well. And, and as we were there, we sought to strengthen their souls by encouraging them just simply to continue in the faith. And, and then the same persecution that I endured, they were would endure the same as well. We told them that through many tribulations, they must enter the kingdom of God. Not through circumcision or law-keeping will you enter the kingdom of God. It's through faith in Christ and accepting the persecution that comes. And while they were there, these churches were forming. And so we appointed elders in every church. And we pray and we fasted them. And we committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Finally, we returned back home to Antioch. And we just say the, the trip was all God's grace. You know, even before we left, we had this prayer meeting. And I remember what was what was said at that prayer meeting is that we were commending the, the, the church was commending us as they placed hands on me and Barnabas and they commended us to the grace of God. And it was God's grace that allowed me to persevere through these things. God's grace through these travels was much and God's grace that came upon the Gentiles was much as well. But, but there's no thought in our minds about how they need to be circumcised or come under Moses. It's freedom from Moses that we preached. And so, counsel, as you consider this matter about whether we're going to compel the Gentiles to be circumcised and be saved, I just encourage you not. Because we're not saved by circumcision. We're not saved by the works of a law. We're not saved by putting ourselves under Moses and all the customs of the Jewish traditions. 
We're saved through Christ and Christ alone. So let's settle it once and for all. And then he sat down. And we read in verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied. And we'll look at James' reply next week. But continuing to to affirm the, the grace of God in salvation. So let's pray. Father, we have looked this week at at your grace. We have seen Gentiles come and and believe in in freedom and freeness. We've seen Peter proclaim that we are saved, we Jews are saved in the same way that Gentiles are saved. The grace of Christ. We we saw in Ephesians chapter 2 is that all of us were, were dead together. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. The Gentiles were dead in their trespasses and sins. The Jews were. We're all part of that. But God, because of your great mercy and love, you saved us and made us alive and transformed us. So in the ages to come, you might show the surpassing power of your grace. Your surpassing grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We've seen that we're saved by grace. Through faith and that grace, it's grace and faith is not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. Lord, we, we saw that in Paul as he reviewed his missionary journey. It's all about your grace working. And so, Father, I would pray for us at Rock Valley Bible Church that we or any here who have not embraced that grace would embrace even that grace today to believe and trust in Christ. So we have a righteousness that's not our own. But as we believe you, you give us, impute to us the righteousness of Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And Father, I pray that we would respond the only way that we can, like those Gentiles did in Pisidian Antioch, that they began worshiping and glorifying the word of the Lord. And Father, how many were, were rejoicing and following after you and following after Christ. And, and I would pray that we would be those who would respond, as Ephesians 2.10 says, being your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, may we walk in the good works that you have prepared for us, not because we need to do that to earn our salvation, but because that is the natural fruit of our salvation. Jake talked about the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5. It goes on to speak about the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there's no law. That's not the law that binds us, but it's your spirit within us that creates those attitudes and those actions. So stir in us, O oh God, that we as well at Rock Valley Bible Church, here in Loves Park and here in Rockford and around the world might see a, a similar time of expansion of your church in numbers, in uh, geography, in ethnicity. God, just seeing your church boom and grow because it's you who build it, and so we trust that you will build your church. May we be faithful servants in that process. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.